Cooking with Chopsticks. The truth about dictatorships. A podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chan. Li Wen, hi, how are you doing? Hi, Marcel. I'm all great in the sunny Germany. <laughs> it is sunny, isn't it? What are you doing right now? I heard you're doing a documentary. You, you do, you, you're working on a documentary for, for TV or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a documentary exploring the modernity, how modernity evolved in uh, different parts of the world. Does it have to do with yeah, China? Yeah, of course. As well, it, China is an important part of it, yeah like uh, events that has been gone like centuries ago yeah, it's or? about um, 700 years ago like uh, 16th century until more like 16th to 19th century yeah oh, okay i see well that's a good opportunity to pick up on that and and um, and think about what will the researchers and uh, documentarists of the future what they will one day report or find out about the times we're living in right now. Yeah, that would be a fascinating um, topic. It is, because, I mean, the pandemic will change the world in a lot of aspects, probably. Yeah. We're not sure yet how changes will finally become obvious but everybody agrees that this is really a, a changer of rules and everything yeah. what definitely is to observe right now is that the the tensions between the two superpowers us and china are getting more strong and um I uh, well yeah there was a report that was uh, published or it, it leaked through the China Institute for F of Contemporary International Relations mm. uh, that is a think tank which is affiliated with the Ministry of State Security in mm. China uh, they draw a report that that warned the Chinese leadership of the rising hostility due to their corona handling and uh, they warned that Beijing has to prepare, in a worst-case scenario, for an armed confrontation with the United States. Yeah. Uh, it does not necessarily mean that we get to that point, but at least there is a rising awareness and preparation of mindset that you can't rule out an armed confrontation. What do you think is, I mean, the Chinese leadership take on that are they are they prepared for an armed confrontation with the u.s or would they by all means actually elude it i think uh with no doubt i mean as someone who grew up in china and uh have been in media exposed to media very early on on very intensive level I would tell you that china has always been preparing for a war with not only the U.S., but the West, or so-called the Western hostile forces. And that was how I grew up, right? It, you grew up, when I grew up, actually, China was slightly better. It was the more opening and euphoric time of the 1980s. But people very often look back to the 1980s with this, um, how do you call it, sentimental feeling, like nostalgia, to it because there were so many ideas that could 
be discussed at that time. For example, the democratization of China, the uh, uh, elections we, we should do, and reforming of a kind of patriarchal authoritarian structure of the society. But uh, one thing people who are nostalgia, who have nostalgia again uh, to 1980s is that they did not consider how harsh that the government still was trying to promote this Cold War mentality and crack down on this free thinking. So I think in 1987, around that time, the government official, uh, government media already um, start to, to attack the 资产阶级自由化, which means the bourgeois uh, freedom. And that is something that has been evolved from the communist time in the Cold War time. There's always hostile Western bourgeois or uh, capitalism societies uh, or countries or states that will encroach in the communism of China. And they will finally in eventually destroy our excellent system. So... Um, at that time, there were lots of crackdown, um, not only on uh, freedom of speech, but also in a way that it's physically, it's, it was really harsh. For example, people were kind of arrested and even executed for doing very small things like uh, dancing together, held private parties, or kissing and got caught in public. Or even just, like sometimes it's just, one, for example, young people have sex with each other. It was like willing sex, uh, kind of sex by consensus. But then the the girl got pregnant because it was very difficult to get antiseptic measures in China at that time. And then the girl was found out and she would be completely become an outcast of the society. Uh, and then she would, in a panic, accuse the boy of raping her. And the boy would, in the end, be executed because it was in one of these rounds of crackdown. Like it's, it's all like a witch hunt at that time. Witch hunting for the Western influence, poisonous, uh, vicious, um, evil inside Chinese society. And this has not, has not stopped. I mean, it's, it's, this propaganda has not stopped, although the measure might uh, loosen gradually. Uh, on the society level, there's more freedom of for people in private lives. But when it comes to ideological level, it's always there. It's it's always that um, the most the most dangerous accusation towards a person's um, thinking or a person's speech is that this person is representing the evil forces of the West. So the hostility never stopped. So uh, it sounds to me that rooted very much in the in the aftermath of the century of the humiliation. What is it called in China? Mm. Um, between eighteen, I, I think it started in the eighteen forties, right? Yeah. With the uh, with the with the opium war, mm. and it was one hundred years where where China. Um, suffered from uh, foreign op op uh, occupations mm. and uh, f as a nation felt humiliated by Western forces, especially also by the Japanese in the in the 1930s. 
and it ended with basically with a defeat uh, of the of the Japanese in 1945, and 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 then with the rise of 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 the Communist Party. Mm. We need to look at how the Communist Party weaponized this victim mentality of the 100 years of humiliation. I mean, every authoritarian dictatorship in the world use this victimization mentality, weaponize it, or、uh, how to say, strengthening their power, because imagined in an enemy and、um, completely blaming everything to the outside forces is、uh, very handy in pushing people together, like like forcing them to unite and forcing them to silent against、uh, their own. Rulers, so if you look at the one hundred years、uh, humiliation, there are lots of th- lots of effort within China、uh, that try to reflect upon China's own problem of society, like the failure of the Qing Dynasty, for example, or the failure of China to modernize itself to a more equal, open society. Was plenty in the nineteen eighties. This kind of reflection. And then after nineteen eighties, after the crackdown of Tiananmen demonstration, all these efforts were basically killed. What what failure are you are you talking about? What was discussed then、um, in Chinese society? I think at that time, if you remember this、uh, documentary called Heshang, the Odes of the River about Yellow River, it was a very naive attempt, but also good. Starting point to reflect upon how China was kind of growing in the process of growing into a large empire. Somehow find that sealing off the border and consolidating the basically consolidating the power of the emperor was the best solution for the country, and that has been somehow evolved gradually. Over thousands of years, so in the end, China become a very, very centralized country. The emperor is such a god-like figure that its power and influence reached into every household of Chinese people. You have to consider this vast land, and yet on this vast land, and the biggest population in the world can have one of their、uh, character in their names. That is the same as the emperor's name. One of the most impressive one probably was uh, uh, the Yongle Emperor Zhu Di in the Ming Dynasty. He was in the 15th century, right, beginning of the 15th century, and he was the one actually to. I don't know if he was the, the probably not the first one, but、uh, because I'm not a sinologist, but he was definitely one of、uh, um, who, who centralized the country and he. He、uh, he started to in in fear of opposition in his own in his own regime. He started to kill、uh, scholars and bureaucrats for their disloyalty or just the fear for their disloyalty. And he also、uh, actually killed their families. And these kind of practices is、uh, actually brought six hundred years forward to today times as well, right? Of course, at that time he did that, but then it's way before, way before. Uh, the first emperor who did that was Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of Qin Dynasty. Not Qing. Qing is the last dynasty. Qin is the first dynasty. And Qin Shi Huang was the one who started the tradition of Fen Shu Keng Ru to burn the books of、uh, different schools of thinking, and Keng Ru is to 
to uh, really kill the scholars at that time who dare to have any different uh, uh, concept of ruling, and and basically bury them alive. Oh dear. So it's Fen Shu Kengru has been there ever since Qin Dynasty, which is like around, like even before Christ, and and that tradition has been on and off, on and off, but gradually solidified, uh, consolidated, and and expanded by the Ru, uh, which is Confucius, a, a school of Confucius scholars, and Ming Dynasty, of course. Ming is more like a, the contemporary empire. Before that, China was always like. A bit uh, either ruled by uh, so-called barbarians from Mongolia, or they were split up in different kingdoms. But Ming was the first one to unite it with this Confucius school. In Han Dynasty, there is a scholar called Dong Zhongshu,、uh, who told the emperor Ba Chu Bai Jia Du Zun Ru Shu, which means to kill all the other, to quench all the other free thinkings, and only support. The thinking of Confucius, which is very essential for dictatorship or authoritarian social order. Still, it couldn't save China from the century of humilia、uh, humiliation、uh, to come in the in the nineteenth century for a hundred years. And spinning forward、yeah. to 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 your time in school, when you remember your early childhood and your early education in school,、mm. have you been? Implemented this kind of feeling of humiliation, or have you been implemented a kind of、uh, thirst for revenge? Yeah, it's very interesting because we are talking about both my personal、um, experience and、uh, the general experience of the time. I think for every kid at that point to understand. I mean, because in in primary school, what do you know about you know centuries of humiliation of century a century ago?、Uh, but then you are sort of indoctrinated because this is part of the curriculum, and you have to remember it, recite it again and again, and you have to write article to、um, argue that this is the right thing. And of course, you cannot write anything that that is against this theory. <laughs> so. Uh, so it's it's more like a pain in the ass in a way that you have to just repeat something very boring and far away and irrelevant. I mean, but but you know the the thing about a young, a、uh, very young kid is that they don't have a word concept. They don't have a concept about the world. They don't have a concept about the history. So what what they were taught in the school for most of them、um, were based were basically from the structure of their thinking. Because most of them would not read history books again in China. This is <laughs> this is also impossible to to read. For example,、um, really subversive historical interpretation of of that time due to the censorship. So the the problem is that many many of my contemporaries would in the end believe, or they they would just like they they would build a structure in their mind. And then they would just grab evidences along the way to fit into these narr- narratives. And for me, I'm different because I was changed. I, I have been always very curious,、uh, coming from an intellectual family. And so, even though my parents did not have、uh, this kind of mature hist- or, or a well-researched mind, I I was lucky enough to、uh, go to Beijing to study and. Um, was exposed to this free thinking from Peking University. Still, 
that was still present in the 19, early 1990s. So I could, at certain moment, uh, subvert this idea and rethink about the whole thing, particularly if you can compare um, this party narratives are saying that, okay, all China's suffering in the past was from either the corrupted uh, emperor or corrupted Kuomintang or the evil foreign forces and really compare China with Japan uh, because Japan had a different modernization uh, process. Japan also suffered <laughs> from colonial invasion or coercion. But why did they accept everything and just rebuild themselves and become strong? And of course, the Chinese scholars nowadays, particularly the international relations scholars, they wouldn't, uh, and diplomats. I had some diplomat who told me that when he was in Japan, he very arrogantly scolded the Japanese officials and said, you guys are just a dog of the United States. And that is the very interesting moment. I mean, I still remember uh, the, the former diplomat in the two, year 2008, he proudly told me all these kind of arrogant word, wording he gave to the Japanese. But then go back, come back to my own personal experience in the 1990s. Uh, my university thesis was about graduation thesis was focusing on how Confucius thinking helped Japan to modernize. And that is a very interesting topic in a way where both, I mean, Japan was like worshipping China for how many centuries? But then in the end, they also used this, this thinking, some of the scholars, to help Japan to modernize itself, to face the challenge of a modern world you know, the competition or the invasion or the coercion. But in the end, they absorbed the Western so, lesson completely differently from China. So these kinds of, of anecdotes actually express is, is definitely the rising self-confident that China comes along with now on the world stage. Um, yeah. the, the former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster from uh, from Donald Trump, he, he has written a book and uh, I think it's about to be published now or it has been published recently. Um, and he remembers, he, he remembers yeah. a, a state visit uh, of Trump in 2017 in November and uh, he recites Li Keqiang, the, the prime minister, uh, yeah. saying that uh, not literally, but generally said... China developed an industrial and techno technological base and doesn't need U.S. anymore. And uh, he actually put down the U.S. Mm. rather to a supplier for China of raw materials, energy, food in the future. And uh, this is kind of a self-confident mm. that China has not represented in the first decade of the 21st century they do now in this in the in the in the second decade they did um mm. still his his conclusion was mm. mcmaster's con conclusion still was that he thought that the chinese also were driven by by fear and not only by their ambitions so do you think that when you see the chinese governments acting today on the world stage do you see them Uh, driven by by the memory of the of the humiliation that they fall back to that that they never want to experience this again, mm. or is it rather just a real self confident that barely can be shaken by by any event? 
Mm. I think uh, when we analyze a country's uh, a nation, national mood in China, we always have to remember that uh, although in every country, leader, the, the leadership's character and mentality play an important role, although the, the, I mean, the, the historical background, the, the development of the world, the trends, uh, mood of the world is important, but the leadership itself also play a very important role. But in China, it's even more important because the power is highly too much centralized in Beijing. So if we look at the, the mood changing or the, or the mentality changing from 1980s until now, you have three stages, right? Uh, you have no four stages more like so first is uh, Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping has been someone who's very practical, and he studied in France when he was young. So he was you know he he liked croissants so much that when Zhou Enlai, the then foreign minister, um, prime minister, visited France, he would always bring croissant to Deng Xiaoping. Freshly. <laughs> Yeah, fresh <laughs> croissant. Yes. Okay. And so, so he he was someone who's not uh, afraid of uh, afraid of foreigners, afraid of the foreign forces, and actually he suffered from his free think a bit more free thinking at that time, uh, and Mao Zedong punished him for that. But then he, uh, still he's communist, right? He 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 was kind of um, educated and grew up in such a, a, a revolutionary time. And so he, in the end, did two things that is most important. One is to really push China to the, to the, to, into the international society and bring China back into a normal country to open and reform its political structure, open the market, open the market and reform a bit of this political structure. Uh, but he did another thing, which is to order the Tiananmen, Tiananmen massacre and crack down on the so-called bourgeois freedom. So his 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 character and his mentality is is very clear. There, there's a conflicting sides of to his own um, how to say personal uh, experience. And then there is uh, Jiang Zemin. Jiang Zemin is also Jiang Zemin was also someone who's very very open minded. I mean, he could speak English, although in heavy accent, but he, his English was good. He's obviously a very intelligent and a joyful person to <laughs> to talk with, although he's still part of the system. Otherwise, he would not be able to rise to such a power. But he tried to make the system less stiff, and, and he, he knew that uh, obviously China cannot survive by itself. He has to. It, China has to uh, integrate with the world. So under his rule, he pushed further Deng Xiaoping's opening and reform ideas. And then uh, came Hu Jintao, who was basically um, Brezhnev of China, a very boring figure, a bureaucrat, uh, who followed Jiang Zemin's rule, but uh, idea and concept, but then he did not dare to invent anything because he's really not um, such good at power maneuver, and he was younger in the hierarchy. And then after him, that was the dramatic turn, which was around year 2010 to 2012, um, the fierce competition of the current leadership, there were two candidates. One is Xi Jinping, the other is Bo Xilai. 
meaning they are the sons of the founding fathers of China, generals. And they were, they, they were both ambitious. And then in the end, we, we know that Bo Xilai is in jail and uh, Xi Jinping is now in power. But For corruption, these two, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so-called corruption, but actually, you know, it's power, power struggle. struggle. Of course, yeah. yeah, they are all corrupted, no doubt about yeah. that. But, um, but if, you, if you ask me whether Xi Jinping and Bo Xilai would be different leaders, of course. I mean, Bo Xilai is more... Uh, self-centered and uh, a vain guy and he could be really really dangerous as well he has this vanity that might bring him to a more violent side but Xi Jinping is although he's less aggressive than Bo Xilai these two are both the children of Mao Zedong you have to think that when they grew up China was in such violent time their teenage time, their childhood, were all in revolution, one round of another revolution until Cultural Revolution when they were both in the countryside, you know, um, with the peasant and, and daily indoctrinated with the class struggle or class war mentality. And they did not read much. The resources of information was very limited. And they could not read anything but Mao Zedong's thinking, which was full of this anti-Western imperialism sort of um, rhetoric. And that's how they think. And on the other hand, Mao Zedong was also one of these... Actually, Mao Zedong was uh, uh, dreaming of, of becoming another great emperor of China, although he, he also tried to bring a bit of Marxism into China because then China could become modernized in material side. So in the end, uh, Xi Jinping's dream, we, we hear enter the China dream that he raised since he assumed power. The great re- the China rejuvenation dream. of China, right? Yeah, the, the, this, this dream, if you boil it down to simple historical roots is a combination of great empire uh, being surrounded by other smaller countries that will all pay tribute to China. We, we have this so-called so Wan Guo Lai Chao. That was uh, a time when, for example, in Tang Dynasty, yeah, China was powerful. And all the surrounding countries come to uh, Chang'an, which is the capital, and pay their tribute to their emperor and then get so-called protection in return, which means the China's promise to give them either protection or basically promise not to in- invade them. Mm. And, I, I, mm, I, yeah. I, rem- I remember there was the, was it, was it the former foreign minister in the ASEAN meeting in Southeast Asia telling literally the other countries China is a big country and you are small countries. Oh, yes. Which actually totally, yes. totally reflects what you're saying. Right? Yeah, exactly. Kind of I'm especially familiar with this because I have, for some years, I have been in um, international reports and also I later become think tank analyst. So I dealt with diplomats and uh, Chinese diplomats and Chinese uh, scholars who study international relations very often. And this mentality, it's not, it's not really just, I mean, what you see on the foreign media reports, uh, you got shocked these days. But it's just actually the 
volcano under the surface that I have been familiar with the lava for a long time. And this was their daily talk in their own meeting rooms when there's no foreigners around. And I know that uh, ever since I was an uh, IR student in the 1990s. Um, and, and it is just that in Xi Jinping's time, it, uh, China, because China has r- risen to the second biggest GDP in 2008, and because China held the Olympics, somehow this China dream uh, intoxicated uh, Chinese people's mind, and then everyone, the new younger generation or new generation of diplomats, the officials, local officials included, would with without hinge using such um, rhetoric or phrases in public to the international society. Now, before that, they will hide it more carefully. They will be more diplomatic. I would bet this is not very benefiting for your reputation, right, abroad. If you compare that to modern personal management skills, one advice to people, if you want to grow big, make the people around you make them big as well. And yeah. if you transfer that on state's behavior, it mm. would make sense to grow big and take the others with you and also with their self-confidence and their self-concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently China doesn't do it. So they choose for the other way to mm. make very clear, we're the big ones, you're the small ones. Mm. And, and that definitely increases the tensions, not only between the US and China, but also between all the countries around China. So I don't know if it's really a smart, um, a smart strategy to do that this yeah. way. Um, you have to be very powerful and very, very willing to, to sustain this power with all means, because mm. you have to be aware that you, that you also um, draw a lot of repercussions, uh, emotional-wise, from your neighbors, if you act like this. Yeah. Talking about that, I want to uh, also refer to your experience, because that's very much more telling. We all know that you have uh, your book has been launched your, <laughs> recently uh, about your experience in China. Was there anything relevant to that? I haven't got the opportunity to read it because my German is not good enough. Um, but was there any experience referring to that, your experience in China in the past how many years? Uh, ten, more than a decade, right? Nine, nine years, nine years we've been. Nine years, yeah, uh, nine years. Did you feel this change by yourself as a foreign correspondent, especially from Germany? Because I'm sure the experience between German correspondents and China, uh, American correspondents will be very different. <laughs> in, regard, in, in regard of what aspect now? Uh, uh, the, as the change of Chinese government's attitude, uh, becoming more arrogant. Okay. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't necessarily call it arrogance that we encountered, but what definitely in our, in our daily work was what we encountered that there was a strong assertiveness within the years passing by. It was the Arabic Spring. Back then, there was a key moment, I think, because before that, we had implemented from 2007, there were an implementation of the Olympic, so-called Olympic journalistic rules, which gave us a certain freedom because China had to comply to the IOC's demand for reporters' freedom of traveling mm. and whomever they want to report or interview, they should have been allowed to interview. And then with the Arabic Spring, China suddenly became very, very nervous. The government became very, very nervous. Before, there was a discussion going on mm. that actually decided to prolong 
the rules that were applied for foreign journalists. And with this point, with the Arabic Spring, suddenly that turned. And the freedom to interview whoever you want to interview was suddenly just restricted or bound to the confirmation of local officials. So basically it said, no, you can't interview anyone you want. You have to first ask local officials. Of course, we didn't do that, but tainted the environment we were working in. We always argued, well, mm. look, we are foreign journalists. We're allowed to what we do. And after that, from the official side, it was meant, no, you need the approval from the local authorities. Mm. So this kind of assertiveness started before Xi Jinping took power. Mm. But with Xi Jinping, we realized that it was mm. getting more and more difficult to find anyone who wanted to talk to us. 2013, 14, yeah, it started to really getting stricter. Yeah. And then when we returned to China after we left mm. in 2016, we returned in 2018, for example, uh, 2019, the tone had changed pretty much within the country and it trickled down to the people all over China. And it was really difficult to finally find people who wanted to talk to us. And it made working in China even more difficult. Funnily, when we're talking about the, the Chinese dream, about the rejuvenation of the nation, I'm not sure if anyone ever was inspired by that. So at least at the grassroots. I'm sure that officials were inspired by it because their assertiveness also has been promoted by this kind of narrative of rejuvenation and a great future of China. While on the grassroots level, I, I did not really identify this kind of thinking. So I wonder about your experience with this narrative, the Chinese dream, prosperity, national glory. Is this something that is congruent with your experiences till today with grassroots people, with Lao Baixing? Or would you say you don't find any of these blossoming ideas? I, I, I mean, first of all, we, let's say, we, we separate the behavior of the um, government officials and the Chinese common people. And the, the, the officials, of course, I mean, from maybe you have been uh, rather lucky with your experience, but from my friends in New York, New York Times uh, and Guardian and all these international, American media particularly, the, the correspondence in China has been more and more um, harassed and, uh, in China and sort of scolded even um, in the past decade uh, particularly since Xi Jinping assumed power. And some of my friend, journalist friends had to leave China because of basically because of psychological breakdown or some of them are recently kicked out of China. We all know that New York Times and uh, right. Wall Street Journal and uh, the other, I forgot which, which one was it. And, and, and I had German diplomats who, diplomat friends who was in China and Uh, basically, uh, high-level German diplomats uh, summoned to the foreign ministry of China and being scolded and saying that if you keep on doing, meeting people that you, like, for example, dissidents in China, you'll be kicked out or basically you don't, wouldn't get visa, that sort of threat. But, but that kind of behavior, you, you already have enough experience, uh, ex uh, uh, reports 
on international media and uh, studies by reporters without borders. Um, but then when it comes to common people, uh, you talk about China dream and the rising of Chinese peoples, um, you call it arrogance or confidence or a certain kind of empire citizens mentality. I have also experienced that. <clears throat> the so-called China dream, right? The the China dream, uh, there is certain part of it that fits into the Chinese mentality of Wan Guo Lai Chao. You know, this uh, citizens of uh, empire that has had thousands of years of glory. Um, people do have that in their, in the society. Uh, people do secretly dream about going back to such a glorious time because of the humiliation that China has suffered, <laughs> so-called humiliation, but actually it's more like, uh, more like because China has fallen behind in the past in the competition with the world. And so, of course, they feel pride, uh, particularly nationalism sentiments was so much instilled in their mind. Um, Chinese people like to see that they are more superior than other people. I mean, this kind of China exceptionalism is not exceptional. It's all over the world. Like, let's think about the U.S. Think about the Americans. I met American f- uh, people who uh, came to China to travel. And I asked him, did he like traveling? He said, yes, um, because whenever I travel abroad, uh, it reminds me of how great America is. Yeah, I remember a guy <laughs> I once yeah. met in the U.S. And he said, I live in the greatest country in the world. Why travel other countries? And he was yes. serious about it. <laughs> Yeah, this is human weaknesses. So it feels good to live in a country that is the best in the world. You want to believe that. So the China dream fit very well into these human weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, it appealed to these weaknesses. So when Chinese carry this dream around, uh, when they travel to other countries, they come to Europe and see that the, your construction site is, is so slow. Uh, we can build a bridge overnight and you have to build like uh, uh, Berlin airport and, and keep it there for eight years before it really function. That sort of thing. It, of course, it makes them feel good. People want to mm-hmm. feel good. Mm-hmm. They want to feel that they are living a better life than other people, even though their life is full of uh, troubles, right? Yeah, that's I, how I see um, it. Coming back to the report from the CICIR, the, the think tank of the Ministry of State Security, um, Some from the Chinese intelligence community apparently um, regard this this report as a version of the so-called uh, Norikov telegram, which was a Norikov was a was a Soviet ambassador to Washington in in 1946, mm. and in his telegram he stressed out the dangers of U.S. economic and military ambitions after World War II, and mm. it was a response uh, of the so-called long telegram. That mm. was from Moscow, from diplomats um, that stated to Washington that uh, this di- diplomat didn't see uh, a, any possibility of peaceful coexistence with the, with the West. And so mm. that was actually the stage, what they call the stage for the Cold War that was um, dominating mm. the world for, for decades. Mm. So um, I think you are I think you, you really made a very good uh, reference here. I think we are entering another Cold War. Well, we are already in another Cold War uh, in a different way. Uh, although nobody has really... The, the future uh, historians will definitely define this moment as a, as a Cold War again. 
um, just like uh, just like in nineteen fifties um, or late forties, but what we are not sure is whether the U.S. is. I mean, it, there are many factors here. In the U, on the U.S. side, you see Donald Trump trying very hard to get elected, re-elected. But be, when when he got elected, he he played this. Um, he, he grasped the the most uh, important sentiment in the U.S., which is the disappointment against the establishment. And the interesting thing is that every candidate,、uh, when they when they get elected, normally they will they will criticize China, in the past decades. But this time, in this campaign, election campaign, it is for real, and it is really that、uh, not only Trump but also his advisors around him, and also people who are you know the backstage influence. Maybe some big、um, entrepreneurs as well would support him on this, and that is how he would dare to now recently announce that he would、um, force all the、uh, pension fund in the U.S. to quit investing in Chinese state-owned enterprises. There was,、uh, I think, a very recent remark from.、Uh... From the guy,、uh, the Chinese、um, negotiator for the entrance of China to the World Trade Organization in two thousand one, Long Yongtu, and he said、uh, he warned Beijing actually of an ongoing、yeah. uh, of the risk of geopolitical isolation, and、uh, him and others also did. Other scholars did,、mm. and、uh, actually, this is the this is the stage we are entering, right?、Uh, maybe a geopolitical a geopolitical isolation of China. And now you can argue, okay, Cold War, Russia、uh, back in the in the nineteen fifties、uh, was surrounded by allies. I still would argue that China, without any ally in the world, would be still stronger than the whole Eastern Bloc in the in the nineteen fifties, sixties, and seventies. I think the mentality within China is the same right now. The stifling of the position of of this arrogance of China is in charge. That、uh, China is strong and China is not gonna、um, back down on anything, any issue, is now prevalent,、uh, and it was definitely a result of Xi Jinping's China dream, <laughs> that Xi Jinping wants his,、uh, you know, that since Xi Jinping assumed power, thousands of officials have been removed from their position because it's a in the.、Uh, It's a cleansing. Historians would find out that the cleansing has happened secretly, and without clear how to say, without any study into it. But what I know is that many officials were forced to commit suicide, or jailed, or you know, basically killed, murdered,、um, and that made. Everyone inside the political system very very scared. True, and that that this is what happened when you try to talk to someone today in in contemporary China, compared to five, six, seven years ago, it's really different to find people who want to be who are outspoken. Yeah,、um, it's it's everybody who wants to give remarks on a certain thing, and it may be something very harmless, something you know,、yeah. just common things. 
economical-wise, yeah. cultural-wise, whatever. People are so careful because everybody, or cautious, everybody is, is just scared of saying something wrong. And this is the atmosphere right now. And uh, yeah, so people, I don't know, but people seem to be intimidated enough to follow the leadership in every kind of confrontation there's ahead, uh, whatever confrontation that might be. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is the general situation that um, in the U.S. side that the, the Donald Trump is is definitely representing. Actually, if you can you can say all the bad things about Donald Trump, those they are all justified. I mean, Donald Trump is a threat to the democracy. is the biggest threat to U.S. democracy. But on his position against China, I think he's not alone. He's quite representing quite a large group of the uh, U.S. elite as well as the public. And so on China's side, you have this emperor-to-be or <laughs> emperor-wannabe already become an emperor, uh, Xi Jinping, who is basically reliving Mao Zedong in his own dreams. Um, I'm afraid this is just inevitable. The conflict, in ta- what kind of conflict will happen in the future, we cannot say when it comes to, is, was, is it going to be armed conflict? Conflict Will there be agent wars? I think there, there might be, highly likely. And uh, the information war is already happening, has, have, has been happening for years. And uh, uh, trade war, we are, we are all familiar. And now it's not about war, it's about severing the trade tie, which is uh, facilitated, uh, kind of accelerated by the virus. So we are already in a state of war. We just don't know whether it will take the, the forms of the you know, armed conflicts. Well, that leads me to the conclusion that next time we can talk about uh, where this uh, contention will take place because we have so many examples. Let it be the Belt and Road Initiative or the China 2025. This is all part, all little part of the mosaic uh, that prepares the stage for this kind of contention. So, Liwen, it was uh, great talking to you again. Uh, Wish you luck with the documentary. It was good to talk to you. It's great. Always always a pleasure talking with you. And I look forward to our next uh, conversation. We will do that soon, I hope. Bye, Liwen. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. with chopsticks the truth about dictatorships a podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chang.